You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. People sometimes say, do you think the world revolves around you? Yeah. <laughs> say, it's supposed to. That's the deal. And you should not be bashful about this. Here, here's, here's the premise. In your business, in your organization, you should be the most valuable person. Whatever it is that you do best that nobody else can do should have higher value to the business than what everybody else does. Therefore, everybody else's first and primary purpose should be to facilitate you doing what you do. I've had staff people in the past who they gripe constantly. There was just a in the National Speakers Association, Steve's a member, how, how many NSA mem members do we have in here? Okay, NSA, National Speakers Association is a trade association that people do this belong to. And the association, amongst its many goofy things, one of its goofy things is the idea that staff should be like equal to the speakers. And so they have all these functions and special workshops, which really are bitch sessions, for the speaker staff people to get together and talk about how screwed up the speakers are. And then they perpetuate this on their tapes. And on one of the recent tapes of the month, there was this whole conversation about staff feeling that they were constantly being interrupted, their work was being interrupted by the speaker when he came to the office and how to handle this. Right? And when I had a large staff, I had, you know, I, I had this deal, you know, well, uh, you're interfering with my priorities. Well, see, it's like federal law takes precedence over state law. See, your priorities take precedence over anybody else's priorities. Scrum. Right? Yours come first. Because their first priority should be facilitating you doing what you do. And if that's not the environment you're working in, you've got to make some changes to that environment. Unless it is true that what you do for the business is less valuable than what somebody else is doing. In which case, you should be working for them. So they should be running the deal. They should be the most important person coming and going. And you should be working for them. But if that's not the case, then it's got to be the other way. The world does revolve around you. And, uh, and whatever you need at this moment is what everybody has to provide for you. Uh, and you need them to get that. Um, oh, about firing customers. I want to go back to this because here's some great wording. The, Pamela's, where are you? You're over there. Her latest newsletter. Um, obviously, Pamela was in a bad mood <laughs> uh, when she wrote this. But um, I just want to show you... I'm, I want you to hear what brass balls sounds like. Um, this is, now obviously you're going to get this a little out of context, but uh, her subhead in her newsletter, the subhead's right here. It says, discovery number two. A, cup, a couple of my readers are jerks. <laughs> well, I guess I wasn't totally shocked by this either, but it really did irritate me that two subscribers who shall remain nameless sent in their feedback forms simply to win the contest. They didn't take the time to fill out one single question on the form. These two readers are guilty of one of three things. Either they are A, stupid and can't follow directions, B, too lazy to fill out the form, or C, too lazy to implement any strategies, but they didn't have the cojones to admit it, as some readers did. Either way, I don't need clients like that, so I sent them both 
both their guaranteed prizes along with a refund of their subscription, which I have canceled. Um, she then asked, does this seem a little harsh to you? <laughs> um, nah. Nah. Okay, now let me tell you what she just accomplished in my opinion, and then we'll let her report. She just made all her other customers better. Because they are not going to take the risk of being on the receiving end of this. So their compliance, and every customer base, has, you know, whatever compliance is for you. For a chiropractor, it's coming for the visits. Uh, in, in her case, it's participating in the things they're supposed to participate in, filling out their forms, getting their feedback in, being accountable. If you run a retail clothing store, it is showing up for every sale. Maybe that's how you define compliance of a good customer. Whatever compliance is, one of the ways to get it is by showing that there is a penalty for non-compliance. And everybody else says, oh, I don't want that, I'll be better. Okay. That's what she accomplished. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Due to numerous things, you know they're never going to do anything but annoy you. I mean, we have people that call us daily to let us know how happy it is. I keep you. Uh, no, that's... <laughs> It was it was just it, it it was just too easy, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, go go ahead. So you got the client who's a good client in terms of they spend money with you, they love you, that, and they're nice people. But they don't get it. Yes. And they ain't gonna get it. Yes. And you know they're not gonna get it. For the most part, we have a good feeling If it's client like a one-on, something akin to a one-on-one -on -one relationship, then what I have done and what I would do is take that person aside and tell them the truth. Harry, here's the deal. You're a nice guy. I like you. You give me a lot of money. That's nice. But it's a one-way deal. You're not getting the results you're supposed to be getting. So I don't want to take any more of your money. If you get mad at me for telling you this, I will give you back all the money you have given me. But otherwise, what I would like to do is have us reach an agreement of certain things you are going to go make happen within a certain period of time. And until you do, don't come around. And that's how I would handle them on a one-on-one -on -one, you know, relationship. It's tougher if you're dealing with mass numbers, you know, and if you're dealing with really big mass numbers, the answer is often just leave them alone. You know, the entire network marketing industry functions on that premise of what 98% of them hang around doing nothing but giving you money. Uh, but in a small set, like in your business, that's how I would handle it. Because the truth of the matter is, you're not being fair to them, letting them continue beyond some point where it is clear they're not getting it. And again, this is easier, and fortunately you are in that position. It's easier when you got money than when you don't have money. But you've got to do this even when it hurts. Uh, because the long-term effect of not doing it is not good, you know, it's just not good for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, ignore just about all the rules anybody gives you in your industry or your business. Uh, pretty much only obey the stuff that will get you in jail if you don't. Um, otherwise, that stuff's all for other people. Um, the reason a thing is an industry norm 
Now think about this. The reason a thing is an industry norm is because it's what all the normal people in the industry do. That's why it's an industry norm. And what results do they get? Normal results. If you go get a thesaurus, uh, normal results mean ordinary results or average results. If you want ordinary or average results, then follow all the rules and you'll get them. But if you want extraordinary results, then you've got to break all the rules. One of the best things that I ever heard, Earl Nightingale was, well, how, how many of you in here own, own some Earl Night, Nightingale tapes? Ah, most of you. Those of you who don't, call Nightingale, call Nightingale, get some. Uh, at least get The Strangest Secret. If you haven't heard The Strangest Secret, get a, it's a single tape. They'll charge you 10 bucks or 12 bucks or 19 bucks for it. Uh, get The Strangest Secret by Earl Nightingale. Uh, Earl Nightingale is like the first success guy I ever heard. Um, and, and, and one of the great things I heard Earl Nightingale say very early was, and it was very helpful to me at the time because it's the exact position I was in, was if you don't have a successful role model to, to emulate, then just look at what everybody else is doing and don't do it. Well, it's brilliant. I mean, it is truly profound. Because it, it applies anything you're new at. So it's great. Let's say, you, let's say your kid gets a job as a car salesman. And he's going to the car dealership for the first time to go to work. That's the piece of advice to give him. Just look at what all the other guys are doing and don't do it. Well, what do I do then? Find something else to do, but don't do what they're doing. Because what are they all doing? Well, they're all standing around with a, with a styrofoam cup of coffee and, and a cruller in their hand in a line waiting for somebody to show up. You know, they're like vultures sitting on a fence waiting for something to die in front of them. So don't, so don't do that. Well, if I don't do that, what do I do? You'll figure that out. <laughs> so you'll have all this time on your hands from not doing what everybody else is doing, and you'll think of something. Yeah. It's brilliant. And so if you want extraordinary results, you just got to not do what everybody in your business, in your industry, in your profession, just don't do what they're doing. When we talked prepay to the doctors, it was, oh, my God, you know, nobody in my town does that. I was like, God, you know, that's the idea. <laughs> right? Huh? Oh, so didn't get that. Continental Airlines right now, there's a thing going on in air travel. Um, those of you who are frequent flyers, uh, already know this. Uh, the airline industry has been hijacked by the flight attendants. And uh, they have decided uh, amongst themselves that uh, they are the most important person on the airplane. Um, and one of the things the flight attendants do not want to do is deal with this. They do not want you carrying anything. A pack of gum is too much if it creates a bulge in your pocket. Get that guy. <laughs> So the airlines have all kowtowed to this. If you notice, if you fly a lot, they're tougher and tougher and tougher. They've changed the dimensions of the little box you have to fit the thing in you're going to carry on, which is smaller than their bins. Uh, they now, at a lot of the airports, including this one, a warning for when you leave, the Southwest Airlines side of Terminal 4, because Southwest is the leader in this, uh, they have put 
guards, plastic or aluminum things over the security doohickey that makes the space a lot smaller. And so like if you carry a, uh, oh like a Hartman over your shoulder bag, it won't fit through there. Most of the stuff on wheels won't fit through there. And so it won't fit and they send you back to the ticket counter and make you check it in. Uh, Continental has announced that all of their new planes are getting bigger bins. Bigger. And in two airports, Baltimore and one other airline, they have sued Southwest and United to get them to take those doohickeys off of those security machines because their customers have to go through there too and they want them to bring just about anything they want to bring on. Now, I'm going to tell you who's going to win this battle. If they have the guts to stick to it, Continental wins. But they're going against the grain of everybody else in their industry. And they're going to get mammoth flack from everybody, but they'll win because they're going to service the customer. Well, ignore the rules. Be very demanding of those who get money from you. Um, it is a, it is a, it has been for 20 years a pet peeve of mine with staff um, that they are friendly. Um, and concerned about and ultimately by the problems of the vendors. Um, my father, who has many wonderful attributes and is in the hospital right now, who used to do a lot of purchasing for us, is like one of the worst at this. Um, everybody's bad. I've never seen anybody who's good, but he's like the worst. Uh, because in 10 minutes with anybody, my dad is like elevated to number one or two on their best, he becomes a part of their family. Uh, he gets invited to the bar mitzvah, he's the godfather of the kid, he's, I'm not kidding you, it doesn't matter, waiter in a restaurant, I mean, this restaurant he goes to once a week, he's in a hospital right now, the restaurant he goes to once a week, the entire staff is coming over to the hospital bringing him food. This is that. Now, this is not a bad personal characteristic unless you're dealing with vendors. See, because now he becomes like that with the vendors. So the vendor tells him all the problems. And they use this. And he now is soft on them. Well, we're supposed to have a job here at 10 o'clock in the morning. Why don't we have it? Well, Al called, and his dog was sick last night. And you know, Buffy is such a nice dog. And, um, you know, and he had to take the dog to the vet, and they got to do the operation. And he knows, and the dog is already 11 years old. And it, you're not supposed to know that yet. You know? You're just supposed to be buying cassette trays. We are, we are not supposed to, you know, go to the weddings and the funerals, and that we're just supposed to get plastic trays here by 10 o'clock in the morning. Everybody makes the mistake, not in that exaggerated fashion, but you do it with your vendors, and if people work for you who deal with vendors, they do it, and you've got to constantly ride yourself and them not to fall into this trap. See, the vendors' problems are not supposed to be your problems. They respond fastest, quickest to the person who is pressing them to the wall. That's who they respond to. And if you stand around and be nice, you will be quickly moved to the back of the line. Now, maybe you are going to get points for this when you get to St. Peter. But right now, what you're going to get is everything late and wrong. That's what you're going to get. 
uh, and so decide whether you want points later or whether you want business to function now. But if you want business to function now, you've got to maintain a relationship with a vendor where basically they know you're a good customer and they know you're fair, but basically they mutter under their breath that you are an SOB. <laughs> uh, and you've got to let them mutter. The demanding client is the guy who, if it was supposed to be there at 10 o'clock in the morning, 11 o'clock's no good. 11 o'clock's as bad as next week. 10 meant 10. But if you let 10 be 10.30, next week 10 will be noon. And the following week, noon will be Sep Tuesday. Steamroller or pavement, your choice. So you pick. How many of you have read Robert Rayner's book, Winning to Intimidation? I tell everybody to read it. I just always said Amazing. Amazing. Those of you who have not read Ringer's book, uh, please put that on your list. Uh, Robert Ringer. You guys don't know who Robert Ringer is? Where have you been? Um, uh, Robert Ringer, the title is Winning Through Intimidation. Uh, I, maybe it's the title that turns some people off. I don't know. But um, uh, it, it's one of those, like, Ten books, maybe, that if you could only read ten, it would be one of the ten you ought to read. Uh, when was that a bestseller? Ringer, that book was a big hit. 70s, 1970s? Um, probably on the bestseller list for a year, maybe, a year and a half. Um, and um, it, it just more, there were more hands that hadn't read it than had read it. And, um, you know, that's disturbing. I, I'm always amazed. I'll do that with audiences, uh, salespeople and business people on Think and Grow Rich, and, and, and a lot of people won't raise their hands. And I'm thinking, you know, have you been in a lead cave? How could you not know about this book? But uh, Ringer's book, it's cheap. It's in paperback. It's eight, nine bucks. I mean, you can get it from Amazon, I'm sure. Um, um, and... And the premise of the book is, is in perfect uh, sync with the kind of things we've been talking about this morning. Um, it, had, it had a huge impact on me. And uh, one of my favorite Ringer uh, principles is uh, this one. I'll only talk about one today. And, um, and it is as it says it is that climbing you know, the ladder of success is, is just a giant waste of time. Uh, you, you might as well just jump up there. Uh, there's this thing of waiting to be uh, appointed or certified or recognized or authorized or, uh, you know, somehow uh, anointed uh, by, the, uh, by the old dogs in the profession or the industry or the organization that you are a part of. Um, when, when, I, when I went to my first National Speakers Association meeting uh, in 1978, I um, uh, went to a, what they call a winter workshop in uh, Dallas, Texas. And I was struck by, by two things. Uh, one is, as an aside, not to this point, but I, I had gone there. It actually has to do with something I was going to talk about later about experts. I had gone there to, uh, to find out how to, you know, how to do this thing right. And um, that year, I started, I started actually making money in speaking in 1978, and I did it like the most primitive, uh, butt-headed way you could possibly do it. Um, 
literally a cold call door to door and on the phone in the Phoenix market. And um, I mean, you can't be any dumber than that. Uh, I don't think. Um, uh, every time I say that, I then run into somebody who's even dumber than I would. But I, I don't think you can be dumber than that. I mean, that's like ground zero dumb, isn't it? I mean, you know, walking into a, going into a sales manager, <laughs> on his door, hi, I'm a professional speaker, do you need one? I mean, you, you can't be... You, you, uh, you, uh, yeah. um, but, but I had a little model that worked, and... Um, I guess in the, I think in the six months prior to the workshop, I, my net, I made about $120,000. And, and, and now I was going to go find out how to do this thing right. Yeah. And of course, the first thing I quickly determined is I was making more money than 90% of people that were there. And the, the, many of them, most of them, were infinitely better speakers than I was, but they had no earthly idea how to make any money. Um, but, but the second thing I was struck by was the 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 wise old man political environment that existed in this thing where you were supposed to uh, a sort of ringer used the term be a little puppy dog you were supposed to like hang around the handful of uh, wise old masters and sort of beg for their attention and 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 the advice that was dispensed could basically be summarized as this uh, uh, you are supposed to and those words are very important. You are supposed to starve, struggle, uh, work for, uh, you know, will work, will speak for food. You're supposed to, you're supposed to starve, struggle, um, uh, go through enormous pain, agony, and travail, um, and not ask anybody for much money for years and years and years while you get good until you have finally earned the right and somehow will let you know that you have to ask for a decent wage. I mean, that literally was the, the synthesis of the advice being dispensed. And it's the synthesis of the advice still being dispensed in that environment today. And, and, and they don't have an exclusive on it. Um, most people who start most businesses and most industries, that's the kind of um, guidance they get from on high. Um, when you realize that this guidance is given is being given by people who are your competitors, <laughs> this takes on a whole new light. Okay, um, and, and it's even true in licensing. Like here in Arizona, we have a thing. Most people don't know about this, but it's in. 30 some odd states function this way. Uh, there's a thing called the Arizona Private and Technical School Board. And this is a, this is a licensing entity, uh, a government agency, that issues licenses to people who want to like have a trade school where they teach you how to be a welder. Uh, ironically, the seminar business falls under the jurisdiction of this goofy department, which very few people know. Um, and occasionally they, but like Dale Carnegie is regulated by this same organization. And every once in a while, they arouse from their slumber and go do something horrible to somebody in the seminar business. Um, we had this ill-fated, ill-conceived, underfinanced, and none of that matters, but we had this retail thing called the Self-Improvement Center, 70s. And um, they decided that we should be regulated by the Arizona Private and Technical School Board, that we were running a school. 
and uh, you should see the paperwork on this deal, which of course begins with your collegiate academic requirements, which you must have in order to be able to teach anybody anything. If you don't have a degree, you can't teach anything, which of course I ain't got one of them things. So we were immediately, you know, having problems. Uh, but what dawned on me as I was going through this process is here's a really interesting dynamic. This board is made up of the owners of these schools in this market. Is it in their best interest to have another one? No. So this whole deal, they're all sitting in a room figuring out how many barriers and obstacles can we possibly put in the way of anybody getting in this business? And, and that exists in a lot of industries. Um, we just, uh, as some of you know, I'm screwing around getting my driver's license to compete in harness races. And uh, at the little track where I am, the final like obstacle you gotta get over is a committee of drivers. Now, they can't get us through their thick heads that I have no, you know, I'm not planning on coming there, you know, and taking jobs away from them. Um, you know, I just want to drive my horse once in a while. But I can see this part of the mindset of, we don't need another driver here. And so, obstacle upon obstacle upon obstacle. And so, when people start to give other people that kind of counsel, gee, you got to be patient, you got to earn your right to ask for big fees, you got to, you know, the first thing to think about is where are they coming from with that kind of advice? And uh, I'm a huge believer in self-appointment. Uh, the marketplace cannot tell the difference and basically does not care. They, they, there's no, you don't gain any points by having apprenticed for a decade or gotten three degrees instead of one or been certified by four organizations that nobody's ever heard of. You, you open up these Yellow Pages ads and in every business everybody wants to put their alphabet soup after their name and the public doesn't know what it means, and the public doesn't care. Uh, the public's totally outcome, you know, the marketplace is outcome-oriented. Uh, and if more people were outcome-oriented in their lives, they'd be more successful, but the marketplace is very outcome-oriented. You know, it, 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 like it, it, with your guys, Joe, I mean, you know, the typical customer doesn't care a great deal whether the guy's been certified, not certified, went to carpet. They just want a clean carpet, you know? I mean, they want the end result. And then they have some parameters about how they want that done. They want it cleaned by somebody that doesn't steal everything in their house. And they want it cleaned in a way that it doesn't fall apart three days after. I mean, there's parameters. But very few of them have to do with the guy having been anointed by the Master Carpet Cleaning Guild of North America. Uh, public, huh? So when you get all hung up on this stuff, it doesn't matter. Um, a self-appointment works just as well. And the neat thing about that is you don't have to wait. Um, uh, best, best, uh, best psycho-cybernetic principle of all I got for you is this. Um, highly successful people become immune to criticism. Um, uh, it, it, I'll give you an example. In my business, in the speaking business, we have a thing called evaluation forms. Um, and if this were like a lot of seminars, everybody would have been given, like if you belong to national associations and you go to their conventions, you probably get these at all the breakout sessions. When you go in a room, they give you a little evaluation form to fill out and evaluate the speaker. 
most speakers obsess over these things. They take all these evaluation forms and they look at them all and they read what everybody said about them. Now you know I look at them, I don't even let anybody do them. But that happened once in 20 years. It only took once. Right. Here's my theory. A, they ain't qualified to evaluate me. B, I don't care what they think. <laughs> so why look at the forms? Right. Here's my evaluation. Do they spend any money? Right. All the evaluation I need. Right. And the one time I did this, actually twice, because I did it recently, I let ASI beat me up and do this. And you get all these evaluation forms, and these people, you know, he didn't leave the slides up long enough. He got his hand, they, it's all the, he's got his hands in his pockets. He did this, he did that. He talked too fast, he talked too slow. He did, 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 room with, did, did. I said, uh, let's see, here's an interesting idea. Let's see how many of these people bought my stuff. So we find the 30 evaluations out of like 200 that had a bunch of negative stuff on them, and 27 of the 30 bought. Now, what more do you need to know? You don't care. But people get all hung up. I've seen speakers at NSA in tears over what these people have said about them on their evaluation forms. You know, uh, women speakers, typically the vicious ones are from other women in the audience. And, you know, it's all hair stuff. Her hair is too big. You know? I mean, it's all, it has nothing to do with the content of the... Her shoes don't match her, you know, come on. You, know, you take a big rubber stamp and put jealous. <laughs> Move the form, I mean. So here, but, but everybody I observe doesn't care. Say, the, high, the highly successful people don't care. They are immune to all that. Criticize them, don't criticize them. I'm going to tell you, he's controversial and there's not much to, maybe to admire about him, but you know, Clinton, is a great example of immunity to criticism. You, I mean, well, seriously, think, I mean, the guy he is president, you know, I mean, you can't insult this guy. It doesn't affect him in the least. And it's why he is where he is. And miraculously, it's why he's going to stay where he is. And I'm beginning to revise my thinking about him being able to make money when he gets out of there. I think maybe he's going to figure out a way to make money. And one of the things about the guy is he is just bulletproof to criticism. I mean, I, it doesn't slow him up for an instant. Um, the best, this is so liberating. George Bush has a favorite story he tells. Uh, he loves to tell this. And he tells it differently privately than from the front of the room. But here's the story. Some months, when we first went back into um, Iraq, not the most recent time, but the time before that, uh, the producer of 60 Minutes calls his office and gets his assistant on the phone and says, we want to have President Bush on 60 Minutes this week to talk about Desert Storm past and Iraq present and future. Um, and we're going to do something we've never done in the history of 60 Minutes. He's going to be the whole show. One subject, interview with George Bush. And uh, she says, you know, go check and see. She goes back in the office and she tells him. And he says, nah, tell him I don't want to do it. And she goes, and tell, well, the producer calls like every hour on the hour. And he is just beside himself. You know, and finally he gets Bush on the phone and he says, I don't understand what the problem is, but, and I shouldn't have to remind you of this, Mr. President, but keep in mind, 60 Minutes is the most credible, 
the most watched, the most important news program on television. This show potentially will have one of the largest audiences of any shows we've ever done. Umpteen, whatever the number we projected, millions of people will watch this show and hear what you have to say. How can you say no to this? And Bush says, I said to him, you apparently don't understand that I no longer give a shit about what 60 Minutes or those 120 million people think. I don't care. I'm going fishing. <laughs> Bye. Now, he, he relishes telling the story, I think, for obvious reasons. What a liberating thing for somebody who has had 30 years of every day waking up worrying about opinion polls and what everybody thought of them, liberating not to care. Well, actually, great power comes from that kind of liberation. And so creating this immunity to criticism, I think, is maybe one of the most important personal development things you could do. Uh, a, a couple of references for you. Uh, if you haven't dug into psychocybernetics, please do that. If you're beyond that, one of the advanced books about this, I think a relatively little-known book, but a great book. Go get this book and read it. This book is called, a terrible subtitle, but really not a very good title, but this book is called Thick Face Black Heart. And I don't know how to pronounce her name. Chin Ning Chu, I guess, is the author of this book. I don't know when this was published. Uh, it's Time Warner, and it was published in 1994. Not that old. Um, you probably won't find it in a bookstore, though. It's not on the shelf anymore. So it's Thick Face Black Heart. Um, uh huh? Would you move? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Get a hearing aid or something. Thick, thick face, black heart. Okay? Jesus Christ. This is the cut. See, on the lunch break, when you guys take a good look at him, because when you come back, he ain't going to be here. Um, Uh, what was I going to say about this? Oh, um, this, is my, this is a decent copy. My copy at home is all beat to crap and yellowed and the corners folded down and stuff. Um, this is like, it, 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 the simplistic way to explain it is inner warrior stuff, but that really doesn't do the book justice. Um, th this, this is a very successful businesswoman uh, dealing, bringing the United States and, and uh, Asian companies together. Obviously a very tough person, uh, and uh, this, is a, this is a book about mental toughness, and uh, I think the, um, the best that I've ever read in, in this category, and I would commend it to you highly. There's the issue of how you deal with failure, and um, the, being in direct response and getting involved in direct marketing um, is, a, is like a breakthrough in this category. Uh, because, uh, of course, we don't think in terms of success or failure. Uh, we think in terms of testing. And um, the, the, the people, pros in direct response, uh, if you thought in terms of success and failure, if that's how you counted, uh, we fail much more often than we succeed, literally on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. Um, if you take, oh, I don't know, uh, guys like Ted Nicholas and Joe Sugarman who have run 
millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars of print ads, uh, maybe one out of six, one out of eight, one out of ten, one out of a dozen, uh, quote, quote, succeed. Uh, and all the other ones flop. You've been listening to one of our gold members only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a diamond member and get access to the diamond members only podcast as well. On top of that, you'll also get access to the whole enchilada with all dance courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.